This podcast was recorded at 9.30 a.m. Jakarta time, Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. Hello, everybody. This is Kevin O'Rourke from Reformacy Weekly, and this is Reformacy Weekly podcast. I've been producing a weekly report, Reformacy Weekly, on Indonesian politics and policymaking since 2003. And now we're launching the weekly podcast. Each week with my co-host, Jeff Hutton from On The Level Media, we will be discussing Indonesian politics, policymaking, governance, democracy, economics, and we'll uh, bring in guests at times to delve further into the issues and get uh, expert insights. And if you are interested in more information about Reformasi products, go to reformasi.info. You can also request a free trial of the Reformasi Weekly Report uh, for two weeks. And uh, contact me anytime with any questions or input at contact at reformasi.info. And we hope you enjoy the series. Welcome to Reformasi Weekly Podcast. I'm Jeff Hutton. And I am Kevin O'Rourke. It's a pretty busy week. Let's get into it. A few things to cover today. Uh, vaccinations in Indonesia are getting started. We've got reason to believe that positivity rates are not as bad as might be believed. We have a really surprising development on mandatory hijab for schoolgirls. New twists and turns in Indonesia's election law that could spell trouble for presidential contenders in 2024. And then in the second half of the pod, an interview with Andreas Harsono of Human Rights Watch on the changes to religious dress. He's been studying this for years. These rules are pervasive. And maybe this development last week means ratcheting back the steady march of religious conservatism. So that's the lineup. First thing I wanted to get in with you, Kevin, is about the coronavirus. And there's been some heartening developments over the weekend. I don't know if you saw this. Definitely in my paper, vaccinations are starting for the elderly, those over 60. It's a bit of an about face, isn't it? There was some talk of vaccinating younger people, well, working age population between 18 and 59. Mm-hmm. Now that's changed. And it's really interesting. Now there was a press conference from the health minister that said that while the elderly make up only 10% of the cases, they are half of uh, the deaths. They account for half of the deaths from COVID-19. Um, wondering what you think about the rollout, the, the, the potential for reaching herd immunity. It strikes me as a bit problematic, especially with that news that you were telling me about this morning, that um, actually positivity rates may not be as bad as they were. It's a bit of an own goal. They just weren't being reported. Do you want to walk us through that and then talk about the vaccination rollout? Certainly, yeah. Uh, the coordinating maritime affairs minister, Luhut Benjayatan, who is in the COVID handling task force, uh, held a webinar a few days ago and almost as an aside blurted out that, quote unquote, there are 2 million data that have not been entered, end quote. (laughs) So that created mass confusion about what he meant by that, because there have been uh, about Uh, 1.2 million people confirmed suffered infections during the epidemic to date. And there's been about six, uh, almost 7 million tests uh, conducted using PCR methodology. Uh, It turns out what he was talking about was that uh, 
there are roughly 2 million negative tests conducted by labs around the country that the laboratories have not reported because they were in a hurry and they thought that the priority was to report the positive results, which uh, stands to reason, I guess, from their perspective. Uh, But now there's an an effort underway to collect those uh, negative uh, test results. So this matters only in uh, shaping the, the data used to understand the scale of the epidemic because for the past six weeks or so, Indonesia's positivity rate has been sky high. So the, the percentage of positive results uh, from tests conducted uh, has always been uh, in the teens, which is uh, well above the WHO standard of 5%. Uh, but over the past six weeks, it's uh, steadily been around 25% and in fact has topped 30% on a few days recently. So at that level, it's a worry because it implies that there's a, a vast number of infections not being captured by the testing data. And therefore, there's no real way to know either the scope of the ac- epidemic truly or the direction of the trends. Now that we have this indication that there's 2 million negative tests that happened that we didn't know about, that sort of implies that the actual positivity rate has been lower all this time. Uh, If you do the math, it still produces a high positivity rate of around 20%, uh, but at least it's a bit lower than the average uh, in recent weeks of 27%. Uh, And it kind of helps provide at least a little bit more uh, faith in the headline infections data, which has been coming out, which uh, has been showing a very high increase during January, but now it uh, appears to be plateauing or maybe even falling uh, in, in these uh, past few days. Yeah, so it was it was really, really bad. It's not as bad as originally thought. It's just bad. Um, <laughs> that's you, right, yeah. <laughs> the number of active cases, that, that, that's the number we should be looking at, right, in terms of, ju- of, of the breadth and scope, the severity of the illness. It's the number of active cases. And, how has that been tracking? Because it actually hasn't been as bad as some other big, uh, big countries with, with big populations. That's right. Yeah, Indonesia's epidemic is uh, clearly uh, mild, and the, the curve is relatively flat compared to a lot of other major countries, especially the similarly sized United States, albeit the U.S. is uh, a rather exceptional case. But Also compared to Brazil and a lot of European countries uh, on a per capita basis, uh, Indonesia's epidemic is is clearly less. For example, there's uh, been um, confirmed deaths to date of uh, just about... um, Something like 33,000, something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, and which uh, in the U.S. is less than a week. Right. So, that, yeah, there's been confirmed deaths of about uh, 32,000 to date during the course of the entire pandemic over a year in Indonesia. And uh, when you compare that to the U.S., uh, the U.S. records that number in about a week. So even if Indonesia's uh, death total is, uh, in truth, uh, two, three or even four times as high as being reported, it's still minute compared to that in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries. However, the problem with Indonesia is that the healthcare care system capacity is small and, and therefore uh, uh, even a, a relatively mild epidemic is uh, highly problematic in terms of uh, distributing health care. Right. If you get sick, you don't have 
as good a shot at getting good treatment. So if you're elderly with comorbidities, um, it, things start looking pretty risky. That's right. Yeah. And there Indonesia doesn't have as many elderly people uh, per capita as uh, developed economies, of course. Right. The life expectancy is uh, simply not that long in Indonesia, uh, but nonetheless, it's a big population. So uh, it's still a sizable number of people. And until now, the government had been talking about, as you mentioned, only vaccinating people 59 or younger. Uh, and that was um, unclear whether that was because of intention to prioritize the productive working age population or simply because the vaccines had not been tested on older uh, recipients. In any event, the government has decided to uh, proceed with uh, vaccinations for uh, the older group, and they're going to be prioritized uh, in April, which is a relatively early stage of the vaccination process. bit of a surprising development that they're actually going to start vaccinating people who are, are not healthcare workers. Well, actually, elderly healthcare workers will get vaccinated first, I, I think, if you, if you read the fine print. But very soon after that, there was there going to be um, a step toward mass vaccinations. I wonder if you can give us a sense of how significant that news is and put it in some regional context. Yeah, uh, so uh, Indonesia is uh, well ahead relative to almost every other country in the Southeast Asia region. Also, compared to countries such as uh, Japan, for example, not only does it uh, have a sizable number of vaccines on hand already, but it's been rolling out vaccinations at the rate of about 60,000 per day, such that it has uh, vaccinated already almost half of the 1.5 million healthcare workers targeted in the initial phase. That's first jabs for a two jab vaccine. It, Indonesia intends to complete that group of healthcare workers by the end of February and then move on to another group of 17 million frontline workers who include soldiers, police, civil servants, and, and teachers. So, uh, and what's interesting is that there's a state-owned enterprise, Biopharma, which has uh, vaccine production capabilities. It's a very old company, about 100 years old. And this is an asset that a lot of other countries in the region don't possess. And so, Biopharma is in an agreement with China's Sinovac to produce Coronavac uh, using raw materials or, or concentrate that Sinovac provides to Biopharma. And then Biopharma does the final stages of production and the finish and filling and uh, inserting into vials. So Biopharma's already received uh, two shipments of ingredients, uh, enough for 25 million doses, which are in production and distribution right now. And they'll be going into arms uh, by the end of February, should be, uh, certainly by March. Uh, the issue really is just whether those supplies will continue to come from Sinovac and other sources. And also the distribution uh, to the regions is the other major issue. Have you read anything about how effective they might be with some of these mutations that are coming along, like from South Africa or the, the British variant? I saw that AstraZeneca, um, that the South Africans aren't going to use AstraZeneca anymore because it's, it's no good with their, with their variant of, of the virus. You, you, you seen anything about that? Uh, yes. So Indonesia is conducting periodic random genetic uh, sequencing for samples of uh, viruses obtained through tests. Uh, so far, the government has not disclosed that any variants have cropped up in Indonesia. 
Hmm. But it's probably just a matter of time. Uh, and if the South Africa variant crops up, that would probably be problematic because you know, only some of the vaccines are uh, even partially effective uh, for that variant. And in order for there to be an effective vaccine for the South Africa variant, probably that's going to have to be an mRNA vaccine because those are the ones that are easiest to quickly update and adjust to target uh, that particular new variant. Uh, but the mRNA vaccines are the ones that are precisely most difficult for distribution in a tropical archipelago like Indonesia uh, because they require the ultra-cold storage. So well, This is like the, um, the Pfizer, right? The Pfizer and the Moderna yeah. vaccines. Yes, correct. Yeah. Like minus 70 degrees or something like that. Yeah, and that, that would be possible for the, the, the major cities, but not the countryside. I, I was actually talking with... Um, someone with uh, with uh, one of the big logis logistics companies and they said that there's actually there's only 10 refrigerated containers in the country that can realistically reach minus 70 and they're mainly used for uh, transporting tuna um so mm -hmm. there is not many of them and they're already being used so i don't know how you get shipments out to makassar or something like that uh, <laughs> yeah, sounds very sounds very fishy. <laughs> yes, to uh, to use a pun, and uh, <laughs> roll out 181 and a half million by March 22. Ambitious to say at least, Re uh, realistic. What's your what's your thinking there? Right. Yeah, the president has set the target of uh, 181 million people fully vaccinated within a year from now. Um, and that's compares to a national population of approximately 270 million. Yeah, that may actually be doable. Uh, really? Because I think the rollout should be feasible on Java, uh, which is about 60% of the national population, uh, and certain other metropolitan areas and in, in uh, other regions of the country. Uh, Indonesia's got a few advantages um, besides the, the biopharma facility, which has a production capacity of 200 million doses per annum. It also has a quite extensive uh, bureaucracy and uh, apparatus of state personnel that extend down to the uh, community level uh, nationwide. And that's precisely the uh, apparatus that needs to go into action to, to get this done. And it's what other countries are lacking. In the U.S., for example, that's precisely what's been hollowed out for decades, that, that public health function. Uh, and so there, there's no personnel on hand in the U.S. to actually administer the jabs to the recipients. Whereas in Indonesia, that's less of a problem. And it's more a problem of the, the physical logistics, those uh, freezer containers and refrigeration units and electricity. But um, handling that rollout of, of a conventional vaccine like Coronavac for the uh, classic variant of uh, COVID uh, on Java, which is the bulk of the population and the bulk of the economy, I think that's doable uh, during the course of 2021. Getting to the hinterlands and the remote parts of the country and, and down to every community nationwide will be a three-year project, uh, I think, at least just because of the, the sheer scale of the logistics involved, uh, the, the immense uh, transportation problems and the planning. Can, can you give us a bit of a primer of, of, of that uh, bureaucratic apparatus that, that you're talking about, this sort of quasi-military yeah. hierarchy that extends right down to the, the village? How does, how does that work and how could it be put to 
to use because I, I know that's sort of a it's a bit of an anachronism left over from the Dutch and I think there's been some talk about wanting to to get rid of it entirely. Now it actually might have some uses. Right, it's uh, vestigial because it's a, a leftover relic of the colonial era, which uh, Suharto for 32 years made uh, expert use of, and it involves several components. Uh, most importantly, the civil service, which is not a, a large civil service compared to a lot of other countries. It's uh, four million people, which is actually pretty small compared to uh, given Indonesia's population size. But in terms of structure, it, it is extremely extensive because it, it does penetrate down to uh, every community nationwide. And then importantly, there's also the structure of the, the national police and especially the military. In the military, the army uh, maintains a physical presence of units at every sub-district nationwide, and they number over 3,000. And then each of those sub-district units has connections to the communities in the vicinity. So uh, that's a, it's a relic of uh, an occupying army, which is what the Dutch colonial uh, system was. Uh, but Suharto kept it in place for his own ends as an authoritarian ruler. And for the past 20 years, there's been no real initiative to change that, that force structure, even though it's inappropriate for preparing for a, an external threat. It's really uh, very domestically focused, but it's an anachronism. But now, finally, it can uh, actually be useful uh, because uh, having those personnel on hand in the regions uh, to uh, help with logistics and actually administer jabs into arms, uh, that, that can actually happen. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, a bit of good news there. I'm moving on to mandatory headscarves. And there was a development out of um, Padang a couple of weeks ago with the um, a, a schoolgirl well, a non-Muslim schoolgirl was refusing to wear uh, hijab or jilbab to um, to school as required by the, the local government. And stemming from that, um, the Indonesian government banned mandatory religious dress in public schools. The, and this is surprising. The religious ministry, the home affairs ministry, and the minister of education, the Gojek founder, um, Nadim Makaram, um, issued directives requiring the local governments to revoke ordinances requiring religious dress in public schools. This is huge. I mean, I remember 2017 as if it was yesterday and going down to the, the 2nd of December demonstrations um, in 20, well, that was 2016. Um, the, the trial of uh, the former Jakarta governor, uh, Basuki Pranama, was in 2017, and he was put in jail for... A blasphemy for uh, going on two years. Um, this yeah. is a, rem a remarkable development. Uh, can you give us a sense of the significance? Yeah, I agree. This is a this is seems like a real turn of events here. Uh, I think it is possible to to work back and trace it to a, a series of developments that stem back to maybe at least the election in June 2019 and and maybe uh, back into 2018, but. Up until mid-2018, it had certainly seemed as if uh, Islamic organizations were on the ascendancy. Uh, they had achieved the jailing of Ahok for blasphemy. They were rallying uh, on a vast scale in Jakarta. In the uh, early stages of the, 20, the, the 2019 election, a uh, small party, the Solidarity Party, PSI, chaired by Grace Natali, recommended changing discriminatory regional bylaws, such as this this one in Padang about uh, mandatory religious dress for school children. And she immediately faced 
threats of criminal charges for blasphemy. And so PSI dropped that agenda item from their uh, platform. So uh, there's been a real turn of events. She, she was campaigning to change those rules, so requiring, I think, all women to, to wear uh, hijab. And she was going to be, she was threatened with blasphemy charges. Correct. Yeah. PSI was uh, campaigning for seats in the legislature nationwide. Uh, and one of their campaign promises was to end discriminatory policies uh, at the regional level, uh, which is something that no one else had done. No, no other parties had taken that on, not even Megawati's PDI Perjuangan, which is supposedly the party most committed to pluralism and respect for minorities, uh, nor had President Joko Widodo. Uh, during his uh, four years in office at that stage, and nor had the Udiono administration, uh, for that matter, uh, during its 10 years in power previously. As as you mentioned, the, this problem dates back uh, almost 20 years now. We've been speaking off and on for years, and I remember you were very hesitant to ascribe to the point of view that Indonesia was experiencing this sort of uh, ongoing trend toward religious conservatism you you thought that it was it was uh, a, a bit a bit niche that actually in the broader community there is still widespread um uh, tolerance and religious plurality was was alive and well you changed that you recognized there was a a move toward religious conservatism what's your what's your view now or better days ahead yeah, uh, I think that there was a momentum within the national political elite for exploiting uh, morality issues. I, uh, I have always thought that Indonesia is a moderate society and respect for pluralism is quite deep. So it had been looking around 2017, 2018 as if the elite was getting out of step uh, what's happened since then is that the uh, Widodo administration is showing some resolve to address uh, discrimination increasingly. Uh, first, uh, there have been expectations promised by Widodo's running mate, whom he picked in mid-2018, Maruf Amin, a very conservative cleric, to pursue uh, a Sharia economy agenda. But in fact, that has never transpired at all uh, since Widodo's re-election in 2019. Um, there was a, a, an attack on a, the coordinating security minister at the time in uh, mid-2019. That was uh, Wiranto, suffered an abdominal stab wound from a terrorist assailant. And I think that was a, a wake-up call for some policymakers, that extremism was something that needed to be addressed. And uh, then Widodo, in October uh, 2019, appointed a cabinet that had uh, quite a few uh, ministers who were focused on addressing extremism. And then more, most recently in November 2020, Rizek Shihab abruptly returned from Saudi Arabia and uh, fomented rallies by his uh, sectarian group, FPI. And the government immediately responded uh, very heavy-handedly, uh, literally shooting to death six FPI members in, on December 6th, and then uh, arresting uh, Shihab and uh, declaring FBI invalid. Uh, uh, those shootings by police, uh, at least four of them, were illegal killings, according to the National Commission on Human Rights. And so uh, the government clearly overreacted. 
but nonetheless, w- uh, what it shows at least is that uh, there's no tolerance among the police or the administration for this type of extremism. Uh, and it was just a, a, another data point in this trend line, which has uh, most recently produced this uh, joint ministerial decree uh, that prohibits regional governments from uh issuing mandatory requirements for religious dress for either minorities or Islamic students uh, at the elementary and middle school level. And that's a, that's a big change. Um, I guess it, it, it also helps the main proponent, the guy who was sort of surfing this wave, Prabowo Subianto, is actually a cabinet minister in the government now. He's, he can't really seize upon... Uh, religious conservatism as as an election issue when he's part of a government that is more or less moderate. That's right. Yeah. So in uh, 2018, Widodo was facing a formidable opponent, actually, Prabowo's Garindra party backed by the uh, most hardline Islamic party, PKS, plus an array of uh, very hardline Islamic groups, not parties, but just um, social organizations, as they call themselves. Then Widodo won that election with 55% of the popular vote, which was closer than and had been anticipated, I think. But then after the election, Widodo offered a cabinet role to Prabowo. And that was uh, really uh, distressing uh, to see, given Prabowo's actions over the previous year and the, the style of his campaigning and his rejection of the election outcome in particular. But it was also very costly in terms of uh, adversely affecting the, the policymaking in an important sector in defense. Uh, that's the portfolio that Prabowo received, along with uh, fisheries for another Gurindra member. But uh, it has had the consequence of splitting the opposition because these hardline Islamic groups that have been backing Prabowo's campaign regard, regard him now as a traitor. Uh, and so they reject him. And that has weakened that um, alliance that had been opposing Widodo. And uh, that has helped the Widodo administration uh, be able to show more resolve on these issues of uh, uh, discriminatory morality rules. Do you think that was the intention or was, was that just the result? Uh, it was the result. Yeah. Now, the intention was to uh, diminish the opposition. Moving on. To, well, actually, on that topic, on on um, on presidential candidates, there's been a a bit of development that could seriously winnow the field in 2024. And I don't fully understand this. I hope that you could probably walk us through it a little bit, but it involves um, putting in place caretaker governments and big regional governments um, for the purposes of waiting to harmonize local elections and have them, have them all in one shot in 2024. Um, right. And this is the, this has the added uh, uh, benefit for some, drawback for others, of, of taking some really big names potentially out of contention. Can you walk us through that? Right. Yeah. These uh, direct popular elections for regional heads have been, I think, the most important political process unfolding in Indonesia uh, since they started in 2005. Uh, because Indonesia has a real problem with a uh, incumbent established political elite, which uh, indulges in in rent-seeking and patronage-style politics uh, excessively. Typically, the only way into the national elite was through uh, establishment organizations like the civil service or uh, major political parties uh, or the military. 
And uh, since 2005, gradually, regional heads have been directly elected, and that's provided an avenue for talented local leaders to become a district chief and then perform well and uh, then become a governor and then get into national politics. And that's exactly how Widodo arose. And it injects new life into the national elite, basically, based on performance to constituents and genuine popularity rather than entanglement with patronage uh, establishment structures. Uh, and the uh, quality of the candidates who run in these elections is typically poor because they're nominated by incumbent parties. But on occasion, good candidates arise and, and they make it through. And there's uh, 546 regions, uh, that, including provinces, uh, conducting elections every five years. So over time, there's been uh, a few names who have uh, uh, percolated up. Uh, and now the uh, polls for the 2024 presidential election show that voters clearly want a proven experienced governor of a major province, uh, that th those are the candidates who are strongest in these polls, um, along with uh, Prabowo Subianto, the, uh, the longstanding opposition figure, who is actually now pro Widodo as a defense minister, and mm -hmm. also his former running mate, uh, Sandy Uno, who's now also in the government as tourism minister since uh, December. So the thing to understand, too, is that um, these regional heads under Suharto had been appointed haphazardly. When Suharto wanted a new governor, he inserted a new governor for a five-year term. So when Suharto left office, all these uh, governors, district chiefs, and mayors all had terms ending at wildly different points in time during the calendar year. And so there were new uh, vacancies cropping up on a rolling basis uh, in these 546 uh, jobs all around the country. So over time, uh, when elections started for these in 2005, they've been grouped into batches uh, gradually. And so now there's uh, uh, three main batches, uh, those elected in 2020, and then another group due to be elected in 2022, and another in 2023. So there had been hope that finally policymakers would be able to uh, harmonize or syncopate all, all these regional head elections together uh, to happen on one day nationwide in all 546 regions uh, in 2027. That, that was the recommendation of electoral reform NGOs and pro-democracy NGOs and experts and so on. However, the statute on the matter is from 2016 and a controversial aspect of that at that time was that it called for this harmonization or syncopation to happen by 2024. So until now, there had been an expectation that this was going to undergo revision anyway before this came to a head. Um, but then suddenly on 29 January, the president said that, no, he wants to keep that 2016 regional head elections law and therefore achieve harmonization by 2024. And the problem with doing that is that uh, over half the posts in the country uh, due for election in 2022 and 2023 will not have elections and instead uh, caretakers appointed by the central government are going to go into those positions uh, through November 2024 when nationwide regional head elections will finally happen and then elected officials will will take over in the in all regional head posts nationwide in early 2025. So it would have been better to do it in 2027 uh, because then you could have had these elections unfold in, in 2022 and 2023. Um, and instead, the uh, Widodo is opting for this uh, more uh, hasty uh, route, um, and it's uh, it has some implications for the presidential election. Well, that's that's so 
joke away, isn't it? Let's let, let, let's get it done. Let's let's achieve the the target. Is that really all there is going on here, or is it something else? Because you know, twenty twenty two, that's the election in 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 Jakarta, and so that means that for two years there would have to be a caretaker. Um, mm. And yeah. Anis Baswedan is not a good friend of the Widodo administration. They do not get along. Um, and uh, that seat is generally considered these, the, well, lately now, the, the springboard to the presidency. Yeah, this, this may be um, uh, an own goal for the administration, though, uh, because uh, it's a, these elections are double-edged swords. By denying Baswedan uh, a chance for re-election in 2022, that denies him a chance to perform well and enhance his stature. It also denies him a chance to fall flat on his face and and uh, fail. So, for narrow political purposes, this uh, choice about the syncopation of elections makes little sense. There's a few other reasons uh, given. One is clearly wrong, and, and, and that's the official reason, <laughs> which is that uh, with the uh, COVID pandemic, it's um, not right to conduct elections because there's a need for the nation to focus on uh, addressing the crisis instead of uh, uh, conducting elections. We had local elections and they were fine. Yeah, so it's precisely the opposite argument that the government was using just a few months ago when it insisted on carrying out 270 regional head elections on 9 December, uh, right at the height of the pandemic. And it insisted that you know, these are too important to uh, neglect, even though there's a pandemic happening. And now, the, uh, less than three months later, the, the administration is uh, arguing the opposite. So uh, that's not the reason. Um, Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, there's inevitably going to be skepticism and suspicions that this is part of a uh, plot uh, to restore authoritarianism and undermine democracy by putting in personal loyalists of the president and his uh, ministers into office as caretakers in about half of the regions nationwide that will uh, fortify the administration if they want to make a move against democracy. I don't think that that's what's happening, but that suspicion and that worry and concern is inevitably going to arise because this uh, decision is so unwarranted and for, for any other reason. Um, I think what's really happening um, pertains to two things. One is just uh, old-fashioned elitism. There's uh, quite a few political elites, uh, including uh, key Widodo administration members, uh, such as the Home Affairs Minister, Tito Carnavian, and perhaps the Chief of Staff, Moldoko, who really dislike regional head elections to begin with, uh, precisely because they're democratic and precisely because they, they bring upstarts up into the national elite, uh, presenting the, the elite with competition. Carnavian has been arguing of, in seeking to uh, scale back regional head elections for years now, since his appointment in uh, 2019. So the guy, the, 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 the guy who benefited most from this, the, the, the one who, the, the ultimate beneficiary of this political conveyor belt that, that you described, um, Joko Widodo, is, is um, throwing a, a wrench into the works. Correct, yeah. He's, uh, uh, <laughs> he, he was famous precisely because he was down to earth and uh, lacked pretensions and uh, was an outsider to the elite. Uh, but um, 
now he's abiding by the the interest of of this uh, uh, entrenched elite, which is very skeptical about this democratization process. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a shame. Uh, another thing is that um, these caretakers are coveted positions, and the uh, ability to appoint two hundred and fifty or more of them uh, over the space of a you know a couple of years is. Uh, uh, a massive opportunity for patronage. So, for who 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 wants to be governor of Jakarta? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that's been I think that was just very tempting. The conservative take on it is that yeah, well, you don't fall flat on your face, uh, Ridwan Kamil or or Anis Prasweden. You can conserve your your political powder in case things don't go your way. But you you and I both know that once you're out of the running, when, when you're not a an office holder of any stripe, um, you lose political oxygen really, really fast. So if yeah. you're at, there's nothing goes staler than an ex something, like an, yeah. an ex general, certainly an ex governor. I mean, who cares, right? They only care like so. Tree Maharini, who is currently a, a cabinet minister, gets slotted in as an acting head of something or other. She's she's on her way. Right. Well, yeah, I think she would have been better off uh, with the the other proposal for uh, syncopation in 2027, because that would have provided her with an opportunity to actually run for governor of Jakarta in 2022 and possibly beat uh, Baswedan. Uh, Tri Risma had been mayor of Surabaya, the second largest city for 10 years, and she really established a, a sterling reputation for personal integrity and energy and, and, and empathy for the people in that role. She's extremely eccentric in a lot of other ways, um, but uh, she uh, has set herself apart from the rest of the elite in ways that really matter to voters. So now she became social affairs minister uh, uh, six weeks ago, and in that position, she uh, is poised to uh, make a run for Jakarta governor, which she uh, could very well have done in, in, in 2022. But now that, that opportunity is not going to be there for her. I don't think that she would be uh, a caretaker. Um, I, don't, I don't think that she's the type of person that the administration officials are going to be looking for when they appoint caretakers. And it wouldn't really benefit her because caretakers are not going to be popular. Um, yeah. So it, this this benefits uh, Prabowo, ironically, because uh, Prabowo is the person with the support in the polls from his party um, and has already run for president twice and came close last time. Uh, the problem he faced is that in 2024, it looked as if he was going to be facing very stiff competition from some formidable regional heads, um, possibly Baswedan. Uh, probably uh, Central Java Governor Ganjar Pranowo, who has to leave his office in uh, 2023 because of term limits. Uh, and then Ridwan Kamil, the, the new governor of West Java, who uh, was uh, the biggest province, uh, who was going to be facing re-election in 2023. Uh, now, with this uh, decision by the president, which, by the way, the, the president's entire pro-government party alliance supports, including an important party, NASDEM, um, uh, Prabowo Subianto faces uh, a degree of insulation from these uh, upstart uh, governors who might have been formidable challengers for him in 2024. So so he's the beneficiary. Ganjar Pranowo also sort of benefits that way anyway, because uh, uh, he, he'll be looking to make a run, um, maybe with uh, PDIP, and you know, that's the party that he belongs to. Um, 
but the ones who are, are probably suffering for missing an opportunity are uh, Baswedan and West Java's Ridwan Cameo and then also Tree Risma. Ultimately, it really disadvantages the voters. Basically, they're missing out on an opportunity to have uh, a say. We'll just leave it there. Uh, coming up, an interview with Andreas Harsono of Human Rights Watch. Andreas Harsono from Human Rights Watch joins us to talk about the new rules that require local governments to lift their own rules about certain religious garb. And just, Andreas, before we start, when we're talking about rules requiring people to wear certain religious garb and outfits, are we primarily talking about headscarves and hijab, or are there other certain ordinances out there? Just sort of before we get too deep into this, what are we talking about here? In, in general, in Indonesia, it is called jilbab. Uh, or wajib jilbab, mandatory jilbab. Jilbab is actually to cover the head, the neck, and the chest. But in English and also in Arabic, it is known as hijab. And of course, this hijab or jilbab thing are always combined with long sleeve shirt and long skirt. There is no way that you wear a hijab with a you know mini skirt. Right. So that is the always combination, long sleeve shirt and long And sleeve. is it about modesty? Is, is it about sort of signaling modesty? Or is, there, is there a particular, is there something to do with the head and the shoulders and Islam that needs to be covered up? Oh, there are a lot of interpretation. The word hijab in Arabic means cover. The word jilbab means partition, man and woman, during a prayer. But we also have the so-called chador or chadar, the fail that cover the eyes. There are multiple, many interpretations within Islam about how women, and this is only about women, how to dress modestly. So in some cases, it is like the burqa, the one in Afghanistan, that even cover uh, the eyes only with mosquito net-like uh, burqa. Yeah. In Indonesia, since 2001, there are growing number of the so-called mandatory jilbab regulation since 2001. Initially, locally, uh, three regencies in West Java, uh, two in West Java, one in West Sumatra, and later that year, 2001, the whole West Sumatra province. And of course, it went on and on and on, Aceh, West Java province, West uh, Central Java, all together, 24 provinces by 2014. There are 24 provinces that have localities with these with these ordinances. Yes, of 34 total provinces in Indonesia. They cover mostly student, uh, state school student, and also female civil servant. And so they're they're all they're all directed at women and girls. There, there's none that are directed at men. No, no. Oh, you know, if you try to wear a jilbab in Jakarta, you might be accused of committing blasphemy. But Andres, <laughs> I'm curious, uh, you, 
how do you perceive the the trend over time uh, during that period you mentioned? Um, was there a spate of activity uh, in terms of issuing these regulations that then died down, or has it been fairly constant? And, and also, how about the the enforcement of these regulations uh, uh, to date? Has, has that changed over time at all? Oh, before last week, before the decree, it was getting it was enforced. There were raids in school. There were raids in public spaces, and the regulation became thicker, longer. Mm and darker. In some places, even colorful jilbab were not allowed. Only, you know, black, uh, dark brown for the scout girl, girl scout, and white for student. Uh, not, you know, not pink, not colorful, flower, floral, jilbab, it is, it is banned. So it is getting stricter. And um, this uh, SKB, the Joint Ministerial Decree, seems like quite a change of direction from the administration relative to uh, certainly two or three years ago anyway. Uh, Is that your view? Oh, yes. It was made as a reaction toward mandatory jilbab for Mm -hmm. non-Muslim students. It happened in it happened in many places all over Indonesia, in Java, in Sumatra. But in January 2021, a father, a Christian father, recorded a conversation with his daughter teacher in Padang, West Sumatra, during which the teacher said that his Christian daughter should wear a hijab unless you know facing the consequences. Meaning. Uh, expulsion uh, from the school. He recorded that, uploaded it on YouTube. It became a national story. Mm. It was taken by national TV, and then an official responded that this is basically too much. Thus, the SKB was issued on February the third, in which that no school are allowed to ban hijab or to make it mandatory for the children, for the schoolgirl, and also for the female teachers. And the SKB says uh, the school have 30 days to implement the new regulation. And if the school do not do that, there are consequences. Was that, a, was that incident in Padang, was that isolated? Or like, was that just a teacher that, that didn't know what he was doing? Or is, is this part of a, is this systemic? It was the school regulation. In fact, the school forced uh, all 23 Christian students in that particular state school to wear the hijab. They apologized later, uh, and it was revealed that all these Christian students were required to wear a hijab. Andreas, do you think that uh, the uh, new decree will be enforceable in practice? Uh, And is there going to be some mechanism for monitoring how things unfold and however many schools there are like this nationwide, maybe um, tens of thousands or 100,000 or more? We are talking about estimated 90% of nearly Hmm. 300,000 state schools. Hmm throughout Indonesia, Uh, meaning that let's say a school has, in average, 
thousand students from primary grade one to grade twelve, which is quite small. We are now talking about at least fifteen million school girls. So it is a huge regulation. The implication is is macro. Um, I'm I'm really curious about the political fallout of this. I mean, three years ago, we we were well, four years ago almost. We were talking about um, blasphemy charges against the former governor of Jakarta, insulting the Quran, um, and now we're we're lifting these mandatory hijab rules. Uh, it's it's just astounding. How how what's the fallout of this politically? How how much support do you think this change in rules has? We do not know for sure because things are still going on. Uh, the battle between the Islamists versus, let's say, the moderate Muslim and the non-Muslim are still going on. Talking about the blasphemy, the blasphemy law itself is still not revoked, which is the goal of of human rights organization you know, and many progressive Muslim too. Can you tell us about the blasphemy law there before, before you go on? What, what, what are you talking about? The blasphemy law was passed in 1965 under President Sukarno. And after the fall of President Suharto in 1998, it has become a political weapon. It is used to corner uh, minorities, to prosecute minorities. Uh, annually, we are talking about dozens of, of minorities, but also progressive Muslims being sent to prison for allegedly committing blasphemy against Islam. And there are calls, even lawsuits against the blasphemy law over the last 20 years, including by the late Abdurrahman Wahid, but they are all uh, rejected by the constitutional court. Uh, so that is what is going on in Indonesia. Of course, the biggest blasphemy case was against then Jakarta Governor Ahok in 2016, 2017, in which at one point, Islamists rallied at least 500,000 protesters in Jakarta. That was the biggest protest ever in the history of hmm. Java Island. Pa Andreas, what legal standing does an SKB have vis-a-vis a Pratran Daira, Parada, or a regional bylaw? Um, is it possible that uh, the SKB will face legal challenge in the Supreme Court and become overturned? That is a very good question. Legally, Indonesia has what academics call a constitutional hole. A hole in reviewing the constitutionality of all regulation made under the laws, under the national law. So the, this SKB is interesting because mm. it does not revoke all of this in constitutional discriminatory regulation. What it did was asking all parties that issued those 60-something regulations to revoke them within 30 days. And if they don't, they will face sanction, including uh, delaying the disbursement of education fund to all of this school. Why the SKB did that? Exactly because the central government lacked authority okay. to revoke all of this regulation. It happens after 2017 when the Constitutional Court revoked the authority of, of the Ministry of Home Affairs 
to revoke problematic regulation in in the daerah, in the region, in the provinces. What's your view, Andreas, about whether this SKB will hold up and have an effect, uh, given what you just explained? Just like that, that whole is implemented toward the ordinances, this SKB will also have difficulties to be revoked. Mm. So it will stay there forever as long as the loophole is not being refuted, meaning that the parliament should review uh, both constitutional court law and also the Supreme Court law. Okay. Okay, Andres, I, I remember speaking with you a couple of years ago and you were, you were telling me you were worried that the, the country was sort of faced a, a future of, of a Pakistanization where it become, becomes so Islamized that um, it forgets it, it's, it's more um, secular. Well, it's, it's more secular roots. What, what's your feeling now with this, with this happening, that sort of right word slide? It is still going on. It is still going on. There are, there are efforts to slow down this so-called Pakistanization process of Indonesia. Uh, there are positive steps that are taken by the Jokowi government to undo what the previous, especially SBY administration had done. But again, uh, the damages had been done. It takes a long time to undo them. Not only this mandatory hijab regulation, but also the blasphemy law, the so-called religious harmony regulation which discriminate minorities as well, and the anti-LGBT regulation. There are 43 all over Indonesia now. Uh, and last but not the least, of course, the 1952 regulation on the definition of a religion. It is very biased toward monotheistic uh, Abrahamic religion, meaning that many local, hundreds of local religions in Indonesia are discriminated, are not considered as religion. So it, the, the damages have been done and, and we haven't undone them yet. That's right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Pak Andreas. Thank you so much for joining us. Andreas Sassono, Human Rights Watch. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This was a product of On the Level Media with Jeff Hutton and Reformasi Weekly with Kevin O'Rourke. For more information about Reformasi Weekly, visit reformasi.info. You can request a free trial of the report there. Thanks again for joining and see you next time.